Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Melissa Knox. Psychoanalysis was her family's religion. Instead of wafers and wine, there were seconals, nembatols, and gin. Baptized into the faith at 14, Melissa Knox endured her analyst's praise of her childlike victimized mother, who leaned too close, ate off Melissa's plate, and thought pedophile meant silly person, gaslighted with the notions that she'd seduced her father, failed to masturbate, and betrayed her mother, Melissa shouldered the blame. Her story of a family pulled into and torn apart by psychoanalysis exposes the abuse inherent in its authoritarianism. Melissa eventually learns with a startling sense of humor and admirable chagrin that divorcing mom is sometimes the least crazy thing to do. She tells the story in her new book, Divorcing Mom, a memoir of psychoanalysis. It's a great book and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Melissa Knox. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. You've written a stellar memoir, uh, Divorcing Mom. And it's interesting because in it, you talk about being raised in almost a kind of religious ideological fundamentalism, although it's not the kind that most people think of when they hear that term. For you, it was this sort of psychoanalytic tradition in the context of a really dysfunctional kind of family system with a narcissistic mom. And that made for this kind of, it seems like fairly toxic uh, situation for you. Yeah, I would say it's a secular religion. You know, it's sort of ossified beliefs. Uh, And I I kind of think Freud probably was not uh, so uh, rigid himself, but his followers, I mean, the refrain you would get is, you know, he was loyal to Freud and he knew Freud and a whole uh, system of interpretation based really not less on evidence than on loyalty to Freud, loyalty to even to the idea of, of one man. But anyway, my, my parents subscribed to this in, in, in the oddest of ways. Uh, one of my, my father uh, had been uh, rejected from the army, he really wanted to be a soldier in World War II. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't pass the psychiatry test. You know, he didn't pass the psychiatric test. So he ended up with uh, in, in psychoanalysis with uh, this woman, Ruth Berkeley. And a few years later, my mother became a patient. And then this Dr. Berkeley decided to introduce these two patients to each other socially, you know, to to stir romantic interest between them. And she did so successfully. So in a way, I owe my life to a psychoanalyst, if not to, I mean, I, I wouldn't exist without that ill-fated meeting. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, you, in the book, you have pictures of Dr. Berkeley, who is referred to as Aunt Berkeley, which is... A, I'm reading your memoir and I'm thinking this is just a great sort of by virtue of negative, negative example, boundaries book for therapists, right? Like all the stuff not yeah. to do because this, yeah. this, this, it's clear that, that your dad had formed this deep emotional attachment to aunt Berkeley here. And, and, and this, well, he asked her to marry him. Well, that's a pretty, yeah, that's a pretty deep emotional attachment. Yeah. 
know. And, and I think what really happened is she fell in love with him and uh, she just couldn't face that. I mean, it's horrifying. You're not supposed to be in love with, with you know, your, your patients or your students or your boss, or you're not supposed to be in love with these people. And uh, if she'd had any, I guess, honesty or training, she would have known how to distance herself. But instead, I think she just thought, well, I can't have him, but you know, Sylvia can have him. And, and, uh, this is, uh, this is what she did. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, you, your dad was, uh, you, you talk about him being a problem drinker in, in the book and your mom is, is pretty narcissistic. I mean, you tell, you tell the story where you're going to camp and she stops, you got, you stop for something to eat as a kid and you have a food allergy and the dish has nuts or something in it that you're allergic to. Yeah. And, and you're like visibly, I mean, you're in really bad shape and she wants to sort of stop and look at the deer on the side of the road while yeah, you, well, she, I think she couldn't cope. I think she couldn't cope. She, uh, uh, wanted, she desperately needed a mother herself always. And if I, uh, had something wrong with me and she had to be the mother, it just made her terribly anxious. So she resented it and she wanted me to get all better so I could make her feel better. So I, her uh, tactic was kind of to ignore it and hope maybe I got better. And then I had to take over and say, you really have to take me to the hospital. Otherwise, you know, uh, you know I won't be around and, and um, managed to get there. Yeah. So, I mean, from a pretty early age, you were, it seemed like you were responsible for the emotional needs of the family rather than them tending to your emotional development as a kid. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that seems uh, like an incredible burden for a child to bear. Yeah. I, I don't know. I didn't think of it as a burden, but I did think I, um, I got things from my parents. I mean, they were talented people and I got, uh, uh, I learned I learned something about art and writing from my mother. I learned something about music from my father. But I never really thought of them as parents. I mean, how did you were they sort of like older roommates or fellow travelers? I mean, what do you how did you well, uh, <laughs> did you find this out like in conversation with other with peers with kids you're like, oh, "Okay, this is really different the way they talk about their parents and it's not what I think of." Uh, I noticed other families and I, after a while, I just wanted to hide my parents because they, uh, they, were, they were so strange in public. They uh, were not, um, they didn't know how to behave in public. And um, I, I tended to like to spend a lot of time with my friends at their houses uh, and uh, then pretend that my parents would change. And then when I got older, try to get away. Sorry, that's my, every time I get in. I, I'm wondering, as you describe that scenario where you're always trying to get out of the house and you're trying to sort of spend time with friends and friends' families, I mean, you, you, invariably they ask you about your family, right? I, I mean, had you, did you have kind of rehearsed strategies to sort of deal with it? I mean, how do you, as a kid, do you? Oh, yeah. Well, I would just tell, give them their professional, you know, the family professional information. I, you know, my mother is an artist and my father is a piano teacher. And, and then I would try to change the subject and ask them about, you know, about how about you? You know, um, and then as I got older, um, I mean, the other family became psychoanalysis. See, that was the whole motive. I, I was sent to a psychoanalyst, this Dr. Sternbach, and I thought, oh, great, um, I can spend uh, an hour and a half away from home because yeah. You know, and this happens right after you're at camp and and you talk to the camp yeah. psychologist and you have this fantasy of your whole family in analysis and, or psychotherapy yeah. and 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 you think, oh wow, I could get better. My dad would. 
stop drinking, my mother would become like a real mother and all these things would, you know, change. And, and so through that, you wind up seeing this analyst, right? And you're pretty, you're not, this is like, like, at t- these are like preteen years, right? When you start seeing him? I don't know. I was 14. Uh, I saw him when I was 14. So at, I'm at summer camp. I guess the summer I'm 13, 14. I go to this, uh, this, the camp psychologist and she talks about family therapy. So the way she presented it, I thought, oh, it's a magic cure and it'll take half an hour and dad will completely change and mom will completely change and everything will be wonderful. <laughs> I think that was what I got out of it. But then there was no family therapy. Uh, my mother didn't want that. She said, no, you should have a psychoanalyst because this is what they believed in. It really was uh, an unchallengeable uh, religious kind of a belief that uh, yeah, you, you, always- you talk about in the book how like basically you're reading the Chronicles of Narnia and how amazing you thought it was and how you didn't get that Aslan the lion was a Christ figure and you're like yeah. it's not because we didn't have religion but our religion was psychoanalysis and instead of bible or religious books you had all these psychoanalytic books on your shelves and that was sort of the canon right for you yeah that was that was the canon I, I really didn't get some of the very basic Christian things where I was out uh, one uh, Christmas morning and I uh, my brother and I were taking a walk after we'd opened all our presents and I ran into two Jewish friends whose parents had been um, Auschwitz survivors and they were on their way to school. And I actually didn't know they were Jewish. I didn't know what Jewish was. I just said, oh, oh, aren't you, um, don't you like presents? Aren't you uh, celebrating Christmas? And they said, no, we go to school on Christmas. Of course, they were very irritated and angry. And and somebody had to explain to me, you know, there's there are religions and, and, and there's, there's Christianity and there's Judaism. Your parents are Christian, which they, you know, they by heritage nominally were, uh, but I didn't really get it. And I didn't even get that the real religion was psychoanalysis for my parents because it was religious in the sense that no matter what actually happened, that they both went on being very unhappy with each other. Uh, and they both kept seeing Dr. Berkeley. Uh, they believed that she would make it all better. And so I made the same mistake. You know, they sent me off to Dr. Sternbach and, you know, first it was kind of fun because I was away from them uh, for uh, like the whole afternoon because it, took time to get there, you know, left from school, went there, then came home. And, and, uh, and he was very nice in the very beginning. Yeah. You say this in your first, you say it's describing the book. It's great. You say this, it's the stage like old guy, like wants to talk to me and listen and cares what I'm saying. This is like, great. Like, it's just like sort of the opposite experience, I guess you're having at home. This person seems to be taking me very seriously. Yeah, well, he did in the beginning, but then he wanted to tell me that he was the only one who could help me. No one else could help me. And also there was something terribly wrong with me. I was a narcissist. I was psychotic and I had a wonderful mother and I should appreciate everything she did for me. So every time I brought up some very strange thing that happened with mom, uh, you know, bizarre behavior, you know, doing ballet kicks on the street or, you know, showing her own body parts to what I mean, it was, or saying that she behaved childishly. Uh, his response was always, you don't appreciate your wonderful mother. So I believed him because uh, I, you know, he was a grown up and, and uh, I had been taught that psychoanalysts uh, were experts and uh, that these were the people we turned to for help and solace and advice. Yeah. And, and he was pretty, I mean, he, he wanted you to talk about sex a lot and it's really interesting because, oh, yeah. you know, he's asking about oh, yeah. your orgasms and at, at one point he, yeah, asked, I mean, he, he asked if, if you want him to spank you and if you have, I mean, oh, he said he 
had all kinds of kinky ideas, but I mean, I'd only been there. For, I've got the book open now. I was thinking of reading that section. I could, shall I read it? Sure. Sure. Go section? ahead. Go ahead. Sure. Okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. So I, I go there, you know, I'm very impressed with his house and his art. It was like, I'd never seen anything like it. He had these beautiful old Roman mirrors and Biedermeyer furniture and, you know, George Gross engravings on the wall. And I, I really loved art. And I, I, I just thought, wow, this is amazing. And, uh, and I'm sitting in the chair and, and he starts, uh, asking questions. And he suddenly says, have you ever had an orgasm? I'm reading. Have you ever had an orgasm? Sternbach asked. He leaned back in his lazy boy and eyed me. I sat up in my considerably less comfortable chair. Even then, I found it unfair that he got the nice chair and informed him with great primness, I've never yet met a boy with whom I would like to have an orgasm. His laugh of scorn or amazement or both filled the room. I sat uneasily knowing I'd said something stupid. You don't have to be with a boy, he gasped for air, to have an orgasm. He chuckled, do you rub your clitoris? Yes. No, I didn't. I had expected to snare Sternbach with my extensive knowledge of sexuality in boys, so the conversation was not going well. I thought I knew more than some girls. You know, so basically, I, I go in as total naive. He's assuming I know much more than I than I do know. That I've had many more experiences than I than I have had. I hadn't. Didn't know what he was talking about. Then when I finally did have boyfriends, it was always, uh, "You're a slut. You're a whore." Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's what shocked me. Yeah. I was like, "This, you're obsessed with sex," and it seems like he he pushes you in this sexualized direction, and then. You're you then suddenly when you begin to do some sexual exploration, you're sexually obsessed and compulsive, and I, I, I'm just like this guy just so seems mild, you know the 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 eighth grade the night or the ninth grade dance, the boy kisses me in the hall, and 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 you know what could be more ordinary? Uh, and his idea was, oh, you you want to be a whore, you want to be a slut. It never stopped. It only got worse with uh, you know when I had real boyfriends. He was jealous. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because he, I mean, do you, do you think, I'm, I'm wondering, like, what role you think he saw himself in with you? I mean, obviously, there's something paternal there, right? But okay, sort of, he wanted to be the father, but I mean, really, the almighty father. I mean, he wanted to be the ultimate father. He wanted to be God. Uh, he was, you know, a God. He was a priest. He could not be talked back to. He had to be agreed with. Uh, and so the problem liked, with these boys is is that they could possibly become objects of devotion that would yeah. compete with the I devotion mean, the that he would. With, yeah. yeah, with my husband. Um, he was very obviously very jealous of my husband. You know, I mean, I still hadn't quite gotten uh, how dreadful the whole thing was. Um, after I married it, and this is now going back over 20 years, uh, he wanted to meet my husband. And, and he was in Austria and we were in Bavaria. No, he was in Switzerland. It was a long drive from Bavaria to Switzerland. It was about a seven hour drive. And I agreed. You know, I thought, oh, he wants to meet my husband. So we go there, you know, you know, so how does he broach that? It's just, is it just like, is it, is it this, I'm just curious or is he saying, Hey, this is very good. It could be very important for your development or your, I mean, how does, no, no, how no, does this he was, pitch I mean, it? At this point I wasn't seeing him and the analysis was over. So he thought this was somehow acceptable. It was 
uh, that he was he was now my friend. Okay, okay. So this is not yeah. okay. So this is so he is sort of feels the professional relationship is over. Now he's just a friend, mentor. Sort I don't. Of thing. It was yeah, but I mean, he never he never really kept to any professional relationship. Looking back, he didn't do any ordinary things. Would be not to tell the patient about your personal life, not to tell the patient that you uh, 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 have any kind of emotional attachment, uh, or to at least examine that attachment. <laughs> So uh, he thought he was just being a pal, and here he was, you know, a German-speaking refugee, and he wanted to meet my my German husband. And then his behavior was just horrifying. I I sort of couldn't believe we'd gone. I still can't believe I put my husband through that. So he sees my husband, uh, and and he he turns to me and says, he's going to give me like a last piece of advice. He's wagging his finger like this. Uh, and and uh, your husband should be your Führer, you know, like your husband should be your Hitler, basically, is what he's saying. Like, he should be my boss. And, you know, my poor husband is sort of turning green, you know. I mean, the last thing young Germans want is is to be told they're anything like Hitler, you know. And uh, and then he turns to me and my husband, and he raises his hand, Sieg Heil, like, like in a Sieg Heil, your husband should be your Führer. He's raising his hand like this. <laughs> I mean, you're speechless. I'm speechless. Yeah, I am speechless. Yeah, I, I, I am completely <laughs> speechless. And this guy was a refugee, right? In the context yeah. of, of, of God, yeah, this is this even strange. I mean, you remark in the book that you sort of like you you were fascinated by this by anti-Semitism and how basically you thought if you married a Jew, you wouldn't be anti-Semitic anymore. And you heard all this stuff. Well, he told me I was anti-Semitic. He yeah. told me, you know, and ba- but basically he, I was anti-Semitic because I'm not Jewish. That was that was actually the reason. Everybody who isn't anti-Semitic is Jewish. And I think you could his aggressiveness and his sort of uh, really totalitarian behavior. I mean, that I guess if I took a Freudian term and I could still use the term, I mean, that there were some insights there that it was you'd call it identification with the aggressor. He'd been thrown out. He'd been trampled on. He'd been sent away from his homeland and lost all agency. And so he was going to be what the one to be the absolute boss and control absolutely everything. That was, that was what it was. And that's interesting that you say, if you were going to use a Freudian term, and I, I mean, do you often find yourself, cause you're, you're pretty clear in the book that you think there's major sort of flaws and this can be a total, a very authoritarian kind of ideology. I mean, how do you, sort of put that tradition in conversation with the rest of your intellectual furniture in your head? Like, how do you, I mean, because it's a part of the late modern Western tradition in ways that are, you know, it's so kind of commonplace, at least the undertones and things like that. I mean, how do you relate to that as an intellectual? Well, I mean, I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There's a lot to Freud. And I think there's one Freud and what Freud wrote about. There's a lot there. There's a lot to discard too. There's a lot of interesting things, but the way uh, this, these two therapists thought about Freud that they they you know, that they thought they were following Freud by being totally uh, you know totalitarian. I mean, look, there there are people who think they're Christians uh, if they uh, if they kill anyone who doesn't belong to to uh, to Christianity. I mean, we're just seeing horrifying examples of that. You know, in this synagogue attack a couple of days ago. You know. Uh, you know, there, or to take a lighter example, you know, the Austin Lounge Lizards have this great song, Jesus Loves Me, But He Can't Stand You, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I think, so uh, I look over, uh, there are a lot of interesting Freudian insights, but a lot of them are not even original to Freud. If you look, you know, Shakespeare, Wordsworth, they're all talking about the unconscious. So poets have known about the unconscious forever. Freud just had a formal edition of it. 
uh, Oedipus complex. Well, Oedipus knew about that. Sophocles knew about that. I think that's an interesting concept. I just don't think that any one concept is like, this is the answer to everything. And I think, you know, to join, say, the New York Psychoanalytic Institute, I think you probably, if you were to say, well, gee, I just don't believe in the Oedipal complex, you probably wouldn't, you know, it'd be like saying, look, I don't believe in the holy host. I don't believe in uh, uh, that the, the, the wafer and the, and the wine turn to the body and the blood of Christ, you know. So sure, there's there's an Oedipus complex, there's penis envy, but like if you look at the way those concepts have been interpreted, it's really interesting how it changes. I mean, I'm thinking of... Um, Your mom actually asked you as a yeah. kid if you wanted a penis. Like, I mean... It, yeah, yeah, it, she did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, when you relay that conversation, <laughs> I, I, I'm reading this aghast. It's just, it's, it's just she's this sort of... I mean, it seems like a bad sitcom scenario yeah, but but it, but tragically it, it actually happened to you well the thing is um i didn't even think of it as a strange question at the time <laughs> i mean i think that was grotesque and it wasn't just it, it was um uh it was the way she put it was something like so should we um you know cut off your breasts and so on a penis it was it was, it was so gory and and um uh and, and you I, relay I think, you relay it in the book so matter-of-factly like and, and i'm assuming yeah. i mean you're a gifted writer I, and i'm assuming that this is how it happened. I mean, because you, the tone of the story, it just you, the way you narrate it, it just seems like this was par for the course. I mean, that these kinds of like this was not related as this shocking event that was out of character, but these are the sort of things she did. Yeah, but I think I, I think she didn't realize she was being shocking, I and mean, I think she's sadistic. I think she was trying to do the right thing, and her analyst said to ask this, so she said this. I mean, she couldn't think on her own. I think she was too scared and uh, too downtrodden, really. And I think she, I think, knew the analyst preferred my father and she wanted the analyst's love. So she would do anything to get that. And that was a feeling I understood because that's what kept me in it. I thought I had to have Dr. Sternbach's help and love so I would do what he told me. So if he said, you have to go to graduate school, well, then I would do that. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, You say, too, that it's funny. You rely on the book. I mean, it's tragic, and, and but I, I, I mean, it's awful, and you know, I'm laughing as as you tell the stories because he talks about marriage and how marriage is so good for young people, and, so, and you, so you start talking about it, and he's like, "Just finish your PhD." I mean, he he, he kind oh, no, of, but he doesn't, yeah, but he also didn't say marriage was good. He said marriage was terribly hard on young people. He was very down on marriage. Oh, he I misinterpreted. I thought it was something. I thought it was I, when he said hard uh, to get into for you. But I thought he meant like a good hard work. But you're saying it it was a hard like a negative. No, no, no. Thing. he meant he meant marriage was a terrible trial, and it was you had to be old and mature to understand it, and then young people couldn't manage. Oh, okay, it was, okay. And to the point where when I married, you know, you know, my my husband is the love of my life, and I I was waiting. Well, things are going to get very difficult now. You know, I was expecting it was going to be terribly difficult, and that you know, he said sort of schooled me to think I'd be. Um, feeling left out or fighting all the time. And it wasn't like that at all. We got along. I mean, you know, uh, we had, uh, misunderstandings were minor. It was a very different experience from what he'd trained me to think. I mean, he'd actually trained me to think that once I was married, married that then I would really need therapy. I would really need analysis to cope with this difficult situation that I was too psychotic to deal with. Well, gosh, I'd hate to see what real analysis looked like with this guy. <laughs> I mean, geez, I, 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 that 
creepy. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. I'm, I'm uh, wondering, uh, I mean, I, I know some analysts and, and I, I think that they, um, there's got to be analysts out there who aren't doing what Sternbach was doing. I'm not saying every analyst was Sternbach, but of course I don't have a sample. I've had other people told me that they had different experiences. You know, I've got one conversation with a friend in the book. She says there wasn't any bullying at all. Uh, she was just looking at her childhood and so on, but she thought, um, she questioned the value of the experience. She said she really was just going through stuff people go through in their 20s. And, and so uh, it seemed to go on too long. I really don't know. I mean, uh, my, um, the, the writer who introduces my book, Jeffrey Mason, as you know, has, is a big debunker of psychoanalysis. And he really felt, uh, uh, he had very, uh, he's much more negative, actually, than, than I feel. He, um, he felt that all analysts were more like Sternbach. Now, I have no way of knowing. I know some analysts who were nice people, and I'm pretty sure that none of them act like Sternbach. Yeah, it's, I had some friends who worked on Coet, the kind of uh, Jewish American, I think he was an emigre as well, but wound up settling in America and he developed a school called self-psychology and the critique of the sort of Freudian approach was this harsh object subject, like the, 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 the analyst was this detached object and really that part of what was healing was inner subjectivity and empathy that the therapist uh, showed. But it's, it's, it seems like you didn't get empathy. No, no, there was uh, no it, empathy. It was just narcissism. I mean, it, it, it was not inner subjectivity. It was sort of like you were like emotionally colonized or something, right? You, I mean, it seems yeah. like you met his needs more. I mean, you, again, yeah. it's, it seems like this running theme in your family and in the therapeutic thing. I've heard this called emotional incest before where, where the child becomes emotionally responsible for the parents or something. And, it, you know, it, it just really does a job on a kid. And it seems like you had this not just at home, but with this psychoanalyst where you were kind of providing them with things emotionally rather than being 
aided in your emotional development. Yeah, that was essentially it. He was very demanding, but at, at least for the first few years, it, it really seemed better than life at home. I mean, he wasn't hitting me. He wasn't going off in drunken rages. Uh, and, and he had all these great, I was very impressed with the office and, and the art and the books. Uh, and, and that he knew, he knew, he seemed to know a great deal. He told stories and many of his stories were about his own experiences in uh, the second world war and hiding. So I would listen to these stories, but then, yeah, I did start to think, gee, but you know, we spent the whole session talking about how he was hiding from the Nazis and we were not, and I, but I would think, oh, but this, this has something to do with, with my treatment, you know, or that he's, I would interpret it, you know, I think he's, he's trying to get me to be less self-centered by getting me to pay attention to him. You know, I mean, I would sort of, <laughs> I guess, you know, like the Red Queen and Alice, you know, she says, you can believe six impossible things before breakfast, you know, you can really talk yourself into anything, unfortunately. And, and I think people have to save themselves. I mean, I, really didn't uh, realize what had happened to me until uh, just almost by accident. And when I was uh, much older, like in my early 50s, I started reading my old journals and diaries that I'd kept uh, when I started seeing him. And and uh, the stuff I had sort of naively recorded, I would just come down and I would come home and, and write down what I had said and what he had said uh, and without any commentary. You know, like a tape recorder. And when I read it over, you know, just a few years ago, I thought, oh my God, you know, I, I'm sort of looking at myself as a character in, a, in, in the book I'm reading, thinking that poor little kid, you know, and wondering why I didn't listen to what I was thinking, you know, listen to my own uh, conviction. So, I mean, I guess that if there's a lesson to be taken from my story for anybody is you really have to trust your own hunches and your own uh, gut feeling and your own, your own beliefs more than that of, of any authority. Yeah. I mean, that that's hard, right? Because we all like, in some sense, nobody learns without traditions, right? We all, I mean, you, right. you, you can't, there's a fiduciary framework to all knowing, right? You can't go into the ninth grade and say, I'm not going to trust the chemistry book until I repeat all the experiments on my own. Right. And yet, yeah, exactly. and yet we're, you also, traditions don't evolve, right? Unless people are critical. You have to have this strange relationship to traditions. You have to sort of trust them. And then hopefully the fidelity leads to some independence from it, like critical interaction with it, right? I mean, which is something it sounds like you were never allowed. That, that, right. That yeah, this, was not, this was not seen as a tradition or something that needs to evolve. This was just sort of handed down from heaven and, you know, like yeah, it or leave it. Unfortunately, it can be very formulaic. Like we are looking for this, we are looking for the Oedipus complex, and I think uh, that makes uh, it's like the, uh, a, a bad form of religion. Uh, you know, uh, when uh, people feel okay, I, I am certain about this, and and therefore I don't I don't have to be filled with doubt. So I'm certain about this interpretation of proverbs or this. Uh, idea of God, and uh, this is the the thing to do. Whereas in reality, I mean, from whether you're a therapist or a teacher or anything, you you're often sitting there thinking, "Gee, uh, how, what should I do? How can I help this person? I can only sit here and listen. I don't really know." And to to be able to be aware that you really don't know, and that you can't just say, "Okay, here's the next step," you know. I mean, I came across an interesting example of this, and I was reading Daniel Smith's book on anxiety, Monkey Mind, which came out a few years ago, and he talks about his various therapists, too, and one of them that he went to had a, a, a list of questions, uh, are you anxious in this situation, are you, and, and, and he wouldn't engage with him in any way except to try to get one or two word answers to these questions, 
then when he finally went to someone who helped him, there was a lot of just listening and asking questions that were not based on any theory, but on the ability to listen. Yeah, I mean th- that's that's interesting that so so much of the human condition can we find healing in just empathy, right? Like that so yeah. much. So much an empathetic response can a- enable us to really become more resilient, as opposed to you know when things are authoritarian. Or you know, I- I'm interested also. Did when with your later rejection of this psychoanalytic religion? I mean, the way it was treated, you know, in your family life and in-, in your own development was religion. Was there something that filled the void? I mean, did that was there a new spiritual journey? Or because I mean, I say spiritual because. It, yeah, it, this is not a. It seems less like therapeutic tool or something like that. And this is f- worldview, metaphysical baseline, yeah. that kind of thing. Like, did I mean? How did? Well, I think I, I always. Wanted, I think I was always looking for one thing. I mean, I always wanted a family. So when I was little, wanting a family took the form of um, thinking that if I'm good enough or I do the right thing, I can change my parents and they'll be different, and then I'll have a family. Uh, that or that I could do something to make them change or make my brother change. Then, then the next, so that was one kind of escape, you know, basically denial, you know, or, yeah. and, and then uh, when I uh, was sent to Dr. Sternbach, I thought, Oh, great. I have a new family. This is my new family. And then, you know, he put me into his psychoanalytic group. So for a while, I mean, that was, they were much nicer than he was. I mean, he had a, a group of patients, uh, that met every uh, Thursday evening uh, in his in his living room, actually. Uh, and I've heard many stories about groups like this. I mean, Martin Duberman also writes about this in Cures, which is his, you know, his memoir be, about uh, you know being a gay man when being gay was considered um, an illness, and all the therapists he went to. And when I read that, I thought of of the the way the group was. Uh, but the group. I think all of us were much nicer to each other than Dr. Sternbach was to any of us. And every time, uh, so, but that really was, that was really powerful for me, having that family of those people in the group for many years. And, uh, but every time he felt uh, that he wasn't the center of our attention, um, he, he let us know and he, he protested. Yeah. You Oh, but I guess I didn't finish the quote that I that I and so I finally do have a family now. I mean, um you know, I'm married, I have children and I have um uh been able uh to to write and to teach and and uh, understand that that my own view of the world is the one I prefer. That I I don't have to look and think, well what would Dr. Sternbach say or am I doing what Dr. Sternbach thinks I should be doing, which I was doing for an astonishing amount a number of years. That sounds incredibly oppressive. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, now, <laughs> I, I, although I'm sure it doesn't the weight of the oppressiveness probably doesn't dawn on you until after you're out of it because of how yeah, how yeah. this is kind of put on you in a way that oh yeah I thought that I couldn't function without him and he told me that I mean I at one point was thinking I think in the way that all many little Catholic girls think gee I'd like to be a nun because nuns are the admired adult I thought I want to be a psychoanalyst like Dr. Sternbach so of course every analytic institute requires that you have uh, what's called a training analysis with one of their analysts so I applied to, you know, this hotshot New York psychoanalytic. And of course they said, well, yes, you have to have a training analysis. And then he said, Dr. Sternbach said, you would have to leave me, you know, like this would be a terrible thing. And, and, and I was thinking, I, it didn't, even then it didn't occur to me, yeah, it would be terrible for him. 
<laughs> right. This guy this guy has no excuse if he ever had low self-esteem because it sounds like he had a cadre of people just making him into a deity. Yeah, I think he did. He did. Uh, his patients were his um, parishioners or, yeah, exactly, his parishioners. You're, the title chapter of the book, towards the end, you talk about divorcing your mom and, and, and how you yeah. basically had to make this break with her. And I mean, it's not that you don't, you didn't keep up any sort of contact or anything like that, but you, it was very, you had to keep her at a significant arm's length. It's funny because you say in many ways, like she, there are ways, it seems she's so narcissistic. She, she almost didn't notice in some ways, right? This, oh, yeah, she didn't notice. yeah, she's, she's a child and, 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 and um, yeah, I think very lonely person, but yeah, I keep in touch with her. I call her. It's just the emotional break. He had trained me. I, I had to be, uh, absolutely honest with my mother. His idea was I had to constantly communicate with her, ask her opinion, tell her everything. I was supposed to tell her uh, my secrets, what I thought. Uh, because, And he said, you know, if I didn't do this, there was no way I would ever have a good relationship with anybody unless I had a good relationship with my yeah, mother. Yeah, because he thought, your dad, he thought your dad was kind of a lost cause in this, like, he was too damaged, right, for you to have. So this was your only shot at yeah, bridging I mean, into like an emotionally healthy adulthood. He's probably less damaged. They were both pretty damaged, but I'd say he was possibly less damaged. So I kept doing this. And, and for years, I felt like I had to tell her things. And then it finally occurred to me, partly with the help of this lovely website, um, Daughters of um, Daughters of Narcissistic Mothers by Danu Morgan, that, oh, I don't actually have to tell her things. You know, I, I can just... Uh, tell her whatever I want to. I tell her what she needs to know. I tell her what she wants to hear. Uh, I tell her she's wonderful, but I don't ever tell her anything that could hurt me when it comes back. And it sounds like whatever you tell her, she'll filter and interpret into the grid she wants to hear anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, That's the way she is. She can't help it. Have you gone to other therapies since psychoanalysis like have you done any um, kind of therapeutic yeah, work? i did i did a couple of but i think uh, really writing that book it was figuring out what the heck was wrong that was better than any therapy you know and that website was fabulous it's a very it's a very um informative charming website and it's got you know all these it's got a lot of humor that's what i like about it like you can lie to her that was like the oh i don't have to tell her you know i don't have to tell her we don't want to visit you i i can tell her uh the kids are sick. I can. I, it doesn't come naturally, lying, but it made it things so much easier, you know, uh, to to do that. Uh, so I think um, I've lost track of the question now. But <laughs> I was just well, asking you know. about other kinds of therapy. That you know, if if there's any. Oh yeah, you know. other kinds of therapy. Yeah. So um yeah. So so when uh, Sternbach abruptly retired, I I actually went to another psychoanalyst, and actually he was very nice. He let me do all the talking, which had never happened, you know. <laughs> Uh, and and at one point he would make these very tentative interpretations. Uh, in one of them, he I, I had told him some dream, and and I remember him saying, "Well, you know, it sounds like Sternbach means poison in the dream." And, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't get. I, he seemed that that analyst seemed to be afraid of imposing his ideas on me. I guess he sort of saw that it already happened, and he probably should have said, "You know, this guy was impossible." But I don't know how. So, and then after that, I didn't see anyone for a long time. And then I tried um, this cognitive behavioral therapist once. You know, they're the ones who have you do things like watch your, uh, be aware of your breath instead of, uh, that is, if you're obsessing about something or depressed, they say, well, don't, don't worry about that. You know, you don't have to turn off those thoughts. Just concentrate on your breath. And I thought, well, that's a neat 
thing that that actually helps. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would think that, yeah. And I guess a, a, an eclectic approach to this stuff, right. Is, 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 is like in many things in life is helpful, right? The truth is yeah, the whole picture. Exactly. Not. That is no one system or at least reinterpreting uh, the old system. I'm curious when you sort of made these breaks, like from psychoanalysis and from this sort of obligation to a certain kind of, understanding a relationship with your mother i mean on one level it's liberative is it also enraging i mean do you look back and think gosh what i lost or like do you do you look at and, and the past as like lost time in any sense or, or well it's or, funny how, yeah, people do say you know god you must be furious but i mean I, my strongest feeling is relief i'm so relieved that i'm not doing that anymore and yeah i mean it's i'm more it's like i'm sad that i lost opportunities that i would have had that i really didn't do what i i would have gone into theater and i probably would have studied dance much longer and i mean i i've had some nice i was doing amateur tap dancing for a while so that's nice but yeah i i lost things but i also got things that i love very much you know i've I have, I have my family now and that was that was what I always wanted well, know, and I've been right I'm glad that you're able to be at a place it sounds like pretty integrated around uh, what is an experience that I mean, it, it's just unbelievable as I read about it and I, 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 thanks for yeah, yeah. I mean, thanks for, for being able to tell your story and for taking some time to talk with me about it well, thank you very much Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Melissa for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Divorcing Mom. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.